What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Solid Ground Podcast. This is episode four. My name is Lucas Larson. I'm here with my boy, Skylar Farley. Skylar, why don't you let them know what we're going to be getting into today? Yeah, so if you guys haven't joined us before, we've been going through the book of Romans line for line. This week, we're in Romans chapter three. We're going to reach uh, what feels like the first climactic moment of the book. There's been many nuggets, many uh, pieces of solid truth that we've pulled out from the first two chapters, but uh, a lot of those first two chapters have been building towards a moment we're going to see here in just uh, a second as we get into Romans chapter three. So we're so grateful that you decided to join us on this podcast. All right, everybody, let's go ahead and jump in here. Romans three, verse one, it says, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? much in every way to begin with the jews were entrusted with the oracles of god now scholar this kind of starts out with a question and in our 21st century american bible reading this seems weird right because we're at the beginning of a new chapter we're starting with a question right so what's what's really happening here and and what is he talking about uh in these first two verses yeah so this is a prime example of where a chapter break sometimes Uh, disconnects our thinking from what was contained in the chapter above, but we need to go back and read it as if it was a letter and there's no chapter break there. So last week when we were going through Romans chapter two, we know that the end of that chapter, uh, Paul's talking about uh, as it relates to salvation, Jewish birth, uh, just physical descent from the line of Abraham and that physical act of circumcision do not count for salvation. They cannot in and of themselves bring you into salvation so then he's saying, uh, he, and he's this whole time as he's going through and he's asking these questions we talked about last week, how he's addressing uh, this hyperbolic, often in exaggerated yeah. terms, imaginary critic for the sake of a forceful argument. So he's continuing that same line uh, in his thought, and he's now addressing, okay, you've basically stripped many things that the Jewish people consider to be uh, special and sacred, and you're saying that these things do not result in and of themselves in salvation. So is there any benefit to being a Jew? And he's going to answer his own question or the imaginary critic's question. He's saying, absolutely much in every way, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. And we know that's no small thing. In other words, they weren't given a blank slate, but they were getting the the writings of Moses, uh, all of the law and the prophets. And in all of these things, uh, they should have seen this straight line, this arrow pointing directly to Jesus. And we see both an example of this in the positive and in the negative in the New Testament. In the Gospels, we know that Jesus actually rebuked the Pharisees, uh, the scribes, and the teachers of religious law, saying, you search the scriptures thinking that they lead to life, but they actually point to me. Basically saying, you missed the whole point of searching the scriptures. It should have led you to encounter with me, and it didn't. But then we see Paul affirming Timothy, saying, from the time that you were a young child, you were raised in the scriptures, and these prepared you. Uh, in order to be able to receive salvation. In other words, they gave him a framework to understand the salvation that is through Jesus. So having the scriptures is a huge advantage in so much as they led you to an encounter with Jesus. Yeah, and that's so good. Um, And I think, again, like, I know we stopped just in the first two verses here, but as we continue to read this, it's really important that we do take everything in the perspective of knowing that this is a, full and complete thought versus, you know, from chapter one to the end of Romans. But I think especially we see it here as things just 
begin to compound on top of each other. And even this idea doesn't stop here, as, as Scott was talking about, um, you know, the importance and even the way that he says to begin with in the original language, right, that word is chiefly. And in some uh, translations, you'll have that word, right, saying that chiefly, not that this is the only reason why the Jews, you know, it's, it's important or, or it's a value to be a Jew, but it's chiefly, it's, it's of greatest importance that they were given the oracles of God, right? And so he continues with this thought as he goes into verse three, and he says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show that the, that the righteousness of God, well, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. And so, Scott, I think that we see in these multiple questions, there there is this last critic, right? As mm-hmm. there were these other hyperbolic critics that were uh, addressed by Paul, um, you know, one being more on the Gentile side, the other being more on the hyperbolic Jew side. We now have this individual and one that you you were saying is really seems like these might have actual been actual uh, complaints or arguments against the faith mm-hmm. at that time or questions being raised in order to attempt to throw people off um, mm-hmm. in some way. Right. But he starts with this one and saying, what if some were unfaithful? Mm-hmm. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Right. And that's referring directly back to what we we're just talking about and them having the oracles of God. Right. They're trying to take out at the very start, the, the trueness of who God is, right? Like his faithfulness to his word and the things that he's done, the things that he says he will do, right? Because if they're able to take out that pillar, then the pillar of Christianity falls, right? Yeah. And so he's saying, by no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you might be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Ultimately saying that God is true and just regardless of the way to manage, right? Saying that he is the one who prevails, his word right. prevails above all others because he's God, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we have here too. I loved seeing that, uh, you know, the NIV that I was reading, it says unfaithful. Yours said, uh, was it faithless? I think was the word yeah, there. Faithful. Okay, yeah. faithless. Uh, the New King James Version said, did not believe. So you kind of marry together this idea of a lack of faithful response and also unbelief. And mm-hmm. really I think the question boils down to what is the sinfulness, the uh, unbelief, the lack of right response um, say about God and his faithfulness and his righteousness. And basically, even if man responds uh, in a way that's not right, it does not constrain or change yeah. the nature of God's faithfulness or his own righteousness. And then he moves yeah. on to basically talk about starting verse five that our unrighteousness, and he's going to do this through other people's questions where they're trying to pervert the message. Even our unrighteousness amplifies the righteousness of God. And we see at least three simple ways. One is if you just hold up the two things next to each other, right? It's like if you were to hold up something that's flimsy and weak next to something that's really strong, the thing that's really strong in comparison looks that much stronger because of what it's next to, right? Um, It's like when uh, Ezra, my 
you know, son looks tiny, but then when someone large holds on to him, mm-hmm. he looks that much smaller, you know what I mean? Right. Like, because of the comparison. So that's right. one way that our unrighteousness amplifies the righteousness of God. But also we know that he's just in his judgments. We've been talking about that through the right. first two chapters, that when God pours out wrath on the unrighteous, he's not mean or cruel for doing so. He's actually upholding the perfect standard of righteousness mm-hmm. for those who are unrepentant. But then the third way, we also know that he's the justifier. So when he decides uh, to show mercy and to give grace through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, he also upholds his own standard of righteousness. So through these three different ways, even our unrighteousness amplifies the righteousness of God. In no way is it nullified. In no way is it canceled. Or is the nature of it changed? Uh, We can't change the nature of God. That's one truth that really comes to the surface in this. Regardless of how we choose to respond, God will be true. God will be proved right in everything he says and does. And then you start to see uh, as he's addressing this critic. And I think, like Lucas said, it actually moves to some real, uh, I don't know, maybe perversions that people were trying to make of their message, ways that they were trying Mm -hmm. to pervert the message they were speaking, is people saying, well, great. If my unrighteousness proves the righteousness of God, then let's sin all the more. And he's like, that is human logic. That is not spiritual wisdom. And in fact, he says their condemnation is just. In other words, he's saying that is a wicked way to think. Do not think yeah. in this way. Yeah, man, I think that overarchingly through these attacks or questions that, that Paul is bringing to surface, we see an individual who doesn't understand who God is, right? He doesn't understand yes. the nature yes. or character yes. of God. He doesn't understand what was given to the Jews and the oracles of God that described who our God is right. Um, and I think that all of it, like even, even the way that he brings up those questions to address that individual, to bring to light the reality that some do not know who God is, is to continue to set an arrow and a course towards what we're going to get to when we get to verses, you know, 21 through 31. Right. Um, and I think he continues to do that as we go into verse nine here, he says, what then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And I think, like I said, all of this is leading towards what we find in the Gospel Declaration later in this chapter, right? But he's again just leveling the playing field in verse Mm -hmm. 9 and saying, what then? Are we Jews any better off having known the oracles of God? Are we any better off even because of that? He's saying, no, not at all. For we have already charged, and he's saying, I've already charged previously that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And then he quotes multiple phrases and passages um, mm-hmm. from the prophets, from Psalms and from Isaiah and even from Solomon and his wisdom, right? Um, and I think that this list, if you want to call it that, or this declaration mm-hmm. is really prescribing a comprehensive and all-encompassing idea and 
mm-hmm. the description of reality that man is utterly and completely broken, right? I mean, this is from the mind, from thinking, from their tongue, from the way in which they work or carry out their life and the way in which they walk, right? And everything that man does, right? There is sin. Um, Hmm. And then I think that in order to get to where we're going, we have to understand that number one, like he said in in verses three through eight, right? The nature of who God is Hmm. in his perfect justness and righteousness, Hmm. uh, but also the nature of who man is, right? And that in all of his ways, all encompassing brokenness, you know? I think what's so interesting, so we're, you know, midway through chapter three. So we've read about, uh, you know, two and a half chapters at this point. And what's interesting is Paul has dedicated the better chunk, maybe minus just the intro, the first seven verses to talking about the sinfulness of man. And in most current gospel presentations we a lot of times want to skip over the simplest we don't want people to feel bad we want to talk about only the love of god but paul again i've said this in one of our previous podcasts is the same guy who wrote the love chapter first corinthians 13 this Mm -hmm. is a love saturated message and he realizes that the only way to get people to recognize their need for what jesus actually did for them is to highlight the sinfulness of all mankind it's only the sick who get healed, right? It's only the sick who go to the doctor in the first place. And Jesus said, I came for the lost. I came for the sinner, not those who think they're righteous. Jesus mm-hmm. loved the Pharisees. He loved the rich young ruler. It says actually that he loved this young man who walks up to him. Yeah. But the man leaves sad because he was unwilling to give up something. But also uh, when we fail to recognize our own state or we think of it, uh, I'd like to picture that, like there's like this uh, 10 foot wall and you can kind of like get half your body over it and you think mm-hmm. well god's grace was just a nudge to get me over the wall when yeah. in reality it was this giant chasm and you were you know a thousand feet deep with no ladder no rope and it's yeah. a sheer cliff you know with no handholds and he reached into that chasm and pulled you out yeah. no matter how perfect your church attendance was no matter how good your report card was what family you grew up in that was the reality for all of us paul's trying to say and he's doing it in yeah. a very loving way but he's realizing I can't even preach the gospel unless I address the fallen state of humanity. And I mm-hmm. think in our 21st century context, we're not actually uh, benefiting or sparing anybody anything by refusing to talk about sin. What yeah. we actually do is we fail to show them their need uh, so that Jesus can provide the answer. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've heard it said by many different believers and and those who you know preach the gospel um you know faithfully and fervently is that you know we have to address the sin of man because it's like holding up a mirror before the person Mm -hmm. that we're talking to right um they have to be able to see their own selves in light of reality in order to then understand their need for a savior like you're saying man i love the way and this might be uh preluding a little bit too much to what we're about to get into, but I want to share it. The way that John Piper, uh, you know, sort of talks about salvation and the grace of God, right? And kind of like what you're saying, right? Where someone's at the bottom of a chasm, you know, he says, imagine that you fell into a lake not knowing how to swim and you were under the water for 10 minutes. He was Mm -hmm. like, you were dead. He was like, you had water in your lungs, unable to breathe, gone, right? Imagine Jesus diving into that water, pulling you out, bringing you to the shore and performing CPR for all of an hour 
in order to bring you back alive and then mm-hmm. finally doing so in and of his own strength right that that is our current you know that that is our state before what jesus did and that is what god did through mm-hmm. jesus right it was 100 percent god and we were 100 percent unable and, and incapable <laughs> of being able yeah. to perform any of our saving work um Man, like I said, we're getting a little too far, or I'm getting a little too far ahead of ourselves. Um, <laughs> you mind reading verse 19 and 24, bro? Yeah, let's do it. So now that we, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced. Let's say that again. So that every yeah. mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, rather through the law, we become conscious of our sin. In other words, it is going to be an objective standard that is going to allow nobody to be justified by their own works, by their own merit before the throne of God. Every mouth will be silenced. Lucas, I know we've evangelized on campus. You've used the analogy before of a courtroom and they've got everything you've done on the camera. There's no denying it. You're just standing there. It's not even the basis of witnesses. They've got the screen. It's pulled up. You're watching all the deeds done. Every word said, and there's no argument. There's no defense. Yeah. Yeah, man. I think that, you know, Paul really is making almost like two final statements before turning his arrow right at the gospel um, and the heart of it. And and that is that all people are under the law and therefore bred like prepared for ju- the just judgment of God, right? And that is both Jew and Gentile, right? Either Jew, like he previously stated, um, through being given the law, and that's specifically, you know, the law of Moses. And um, like you saying at the beginning of this, the oracles of God in that way, right? As well as the Gentile having the law of God and the moral law being written upon his own heart, right? Being on his conscience. And so in both respects, all are liable to judgment all are under the law right and then the second point i think that he makes um is that no one can justify themselves in the eyes of the lord through working out the law right through their own efforts and their own striving and their own attempts to be able to follow the letter of the law right uh, because the reality is is that as he said in verse 9 I've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, meaning that all have sin, right? That, that there is no one who is without sin, and therefore all will be judged by that sin, no matter how much good works you do, right? To carry out that, that court analogy, right? Before a judge who has you on camera for all of the sins that you've done, if you told him, well, I followed these laws, and I followed those laws, and I did all of these other things, and I was supposed to do this and that, he would say, well, yeah, you're supposed to. That's the law. He's like, that's exactly the way you're supposed to live <laughs> right. out. What am I supposed to reward you because you did what you're supposed to right. do, right? In the same light, just because we have followed other things, but lapsed, even if it's in much fewer areas, the lapse mm-hmm. is still there. The, the the sin is still there. The breaking of the law is still there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what Paul is setting up as he makes these two statements. Yeah. Man, and I'll just give one last analogy. This helps me to think about, like, if the goal is getting to the moon, and you're wearing ankle weights around to try to increase your vertical jump and hitting squats every other day, that's great. Add two inches to your vertical jump, but you're still, you know, hundreds of miles away from your target goal. And you look ridiculous on your 
driveway, you know, trying to vertical jump your way to the moon. We need to realize the standard of the holiness of God and where we're actually at. And, you know, we applaud the effort, but at the end of the day, there was a gap that we could not cross apart from the finished work of Christ. Hmm. So good. All right. Want to jump into it? Yeah. So, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. And I want to stop there just really briefly before we go on. And I think this is so important to know that the law and the prophets undergird this message of righteousness that is uh, by faith through grace. And it supports that message. They're not in contradiction. Sometimes people think that the Old Testament and the New Testament are in contradiction. God had plan A. We're going to give people the law. We'll kind of do a trial run on this. It was a pilot. Okay, cancel that show. Didn't work. Let's, you know, start a brand new series. Okay, we're going to do the grace thing. That worked out so much better. I'm so glad. Mm -hmm. No, it, it, this was always the plan. This yeah. was the plan from the beginning. We need to understand that the two work together. They're not in contradiction. So picking up in verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So good, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, we mentioned that we were going to hit a climactic moment mm -hmm. based on the first three chapters, what we've been building towards. And verse 23 uh, yeah. If you ever, you know, if you grew up in Sunday school or church, learning different evangelistic techniques, you're probably familiar with the Romans Road. It's a simple way to share the gospel with just a handful of verses. And this is typically the first verse that's shared, Romans 3.23. And basically, this is the climactic uh, moment of everything that's been building in the first three chapters. He's leveled every argument. He's torn apart uh, the argument that some might have. Oh, well, we have circumcision. Oh, we're the descendants mm -hmm. of Abraham. Or I never had the law. I'm a Gentile. So what standard are you going to judge me based on? I didn't know that this was wrong. And he's yeah. basically saying in this one statement, but all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Yeah. And but I love that the statement doesn't stop there. Yes, <laughs> and we yes, get, yes. <laughs> you know, verse 24 coming right after and saying all have sinned and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Man, I love the language uh, mm -hmm. that is used. Like it, it throws me again, uh, it continues to throws me back to the analogy of the courtroom, right? Because these are court like statements, right? And saying mm -hmm. that we're justified by mm -hmm. his grace, right? Being put in a state of justness before the God or just, um, retribution or judgment before God because of his grace, right? Which is a free gift. It was done through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, meaning we've been redeemed, right? We've been taken mm -hmm. from a state of brokenness into a mm -hmm. state of life in him. And it was put forward or Christ was put forward by God again, as a free gift of grace, as a propitiation or a, 
payment of atonement, right? Paying forward a debt or paying a debt off through the blood of Jesus. Um, and, you know, like, as you've heard me say before, and I've, you know, gotten from Ray Comfort, you know, as you're saying, you know, as we're standing before the judgment throne of God, right? And all of our bad deeds are strung out before us. And, you know, it's all caught on tape. We're red handed, right? Jesus comes in through the back door of the courtroom and pays our bail. He takes our place really, right? And it's all through his atoning blood on the cross. I mean, I love that, that statement does not stop at for all of us sin to fall short of the glory of God. But I also think it's incredibly important for that be known, right? That verse 23 be known that all have sinned and we do fall short of his glory, right? That is what our sin is. It is, it is our falling short of the standard that is set by who God is. And I think it's really key, verse 25, so we never confuse what it was that Jesus actually did on the mm -hmm. cross. And this is, again, building off of verse 23, 24, and it's the word atonement. God presented Christ as a sacrifice yeah. of atonement, meaning that he did it in our place to pay for our sins, to absorb the wrath of God directed yeah. towards sin. God's wrath was directed towards the sin that we had committed. Christ took that upon himself as a sacrificial lamb of God and yeah. died uh, as the atoning sacrifice so that we could have forgiveness of our sins and have our slate wiped clean. Yeah, uh, I've okay. heard, and the reason that I'm drawing that out is because there's actually uh, people who will debate uh, what Jesus' death symbolized, and they'll try to say it wasn't atonement because that would make God this moral monster, and therefore, uh, you know, he would be unjust for having pouring out wrath on his own son. No, it makes very clear here that he did this as a sacrifice of atonement. This was not just carried out to the end of man's, to demonstrate the ugliness of man's sin, that they basically killed God. Jesus gave himself in obedience to the Father, and the Father demanded a sacrifice, the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. So we need yeah. to understand and appreciate what Jesus did as the atoning sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. And yeah. I think that's pretty clear all the way through scripture. That's where, again, the law upholds this message. We have hand-in-hand uh, -hand with the do's and the don'ts, the system of atonement built into it. Mm -hmm. And Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of that atonement system. We have yeah. in the prophets all these statements about the coming one straight through the tip of John the Baptist's finger. Behold, yeah. the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And that's what he did with his atoning sacrifice and ultimately yeah. through the shedding of his blood. Because basically sin brings death into the world. Blood must be shed uh, yeah. to atone for sin. So, Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we'll get later the statement um, that the wages of sin is death, right? And it's like, you know, that idea of, of blood having to be spilled on a part of atoning sins, right? I mean, it's, it's death for death, right? If, if what we're meant to be paid for our sins is death, something has to take that place, right? In the same way that in um, the Garden of Eden, right, as Adam and Eve needed clothing, right, the, the lamb that was slain there in order to give them clothes to wear to cover their shame was a foreshadow to what who christ would be right yes, and, yes, and giving his yes, life that yes. we might be covered in and that's white wool right being covered in white right which is a sim <laughs> symbolic um of our atonement before him right being made clean before him um mm. i mean i love the logic that flows from this though as he goes mm. uh through 25 into 26 
He says that this work, this justification by grace, this redemption of Christ who is put forward as a atonement by his blood to be received by faith, this was done in order to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present mm-hmm. time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who mm-hmm. has faith in Jesus. I mean, I think it's important to note uh, before like unpacking that, that this isn't saying that the primary reason that God put Christ forward as a propitiation for our sins was so that to, to show his righteousness, right? Yes, it was to show his righteousness, but we also know that God so loved the world that he gave his only mm-hmm. son, right? There, this was not the only place through which God worked in, in mm-hmm. desiring to do this. Um, just wanted to mm-hmm. note that before we kind of unpack. But, uh, you know, I think that, again, as we're saying that this is a full and complete letter to the Romans all mm-hmm. through one thought, we get this verbiage, right, and saying this was to show God's righteousness, which is what we heard, uh, what was that, in chapter 1, verse 17, 18, right? Um mm-hmm showing the righteousness of God, because in his divine forbearance, right, which is what we heard back in chapter two, he had passed over former sins, right? So we get the, the logical reasoning of how this was worked out, right? And that God showed his righteousness through the propitiation of Jesus' blood for our sins, and that he was still upholding the righteousness of the law of atonement and of making all things just and judging in a righteous and just way in that though people are sinners, right? Their sins are covered by one who was, who, who received the wrath of God. And that was the man, Jesus, the savior, Jesus, right? He took our place of judgment. And so that judgment was still carried out for the sins that occurred. Right. Um, And again, that is, was done in divine forbearance and that he gave us, time long suffering right is what we heard you know he gave us time in his grace in order to accept the gift of christ right though his judgment was just at all times during that process it then was placed upon jesus in the moment that we believed in him and i think that we're living in an age where god is exhibiting the divine forbearance yet again Mm -hmm. As he's allowing the gospel to go to the ends of the earth, he's giving people time to respond to the message of salvation. And we're told from, you know, Peter's writings that he desires that none should perish. The heart of God, like Lucas mentioned, John 3, 16, is so saturated in love. His heart is not that any should perish. We find that even in the book of Ezekiel, God Mm -hmm. gets no pleasure out of destroying the wicked. But he's the just and the justifier. He desires that everyone would be justified through the mercy exhibited through his son by receiving the free gift of grace. But he's also just. He has a perfect standard, but he wants to help everybody get there. But the reality is that not everybody will choose to respond in such a way. Um, So picking up in verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded because of what? Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. That none should boast. (laughs) I think that that's, again, one of those climactic 
statements. This is not the only epistle where we find this type mm -hmm. of logic. And the idea is that you did nothing to earn your salvation. Yep. Therefore, it's a level playing field at the foot yep. of the cross. And this yep. is not just a good story, but the gospel is also a plan that's supposed to shape our life. And yep. when we hear this, it has practical implications. It means that uh, there shouldn't be this idea of superiority or elitism or the rich mm -hmm. and the poor or, you know, this so this class or that. No, yeah. it, right. it's completely level because none can boast in the presence of God. So it has extreme practical implications for the body of Christ and how we yeah. do things, how we sit around the table, how we break bread with one another, how we view one another as uh, equal in the Lord. So, uh, again, I love this statement, just that where then is boasting, it is excluded because of what Christ has done. We have no ability to boast before God. Yeah. And so good. And I'm just going to wrap up here. If you got anything else to say, man, let me know. But, uh, you know, that, that is the faith that we proclaim, right? That we are all sinners, right? Fallen short of the glory of God and it is by God's grace alone as a gift towards us who are in a completely helpless state that we would be resurrected, redeemed, revived um, by the atoning work of Jesus Christ who took our place having the wrath of God poured out on him that God still might remain just and righteous, right? But that we might have eternal life and be able to spend eternity with God and all of it for the sake of the glory mm -hmm. of God among all people, yes. right? He's saying, yes. I love that he says that this, since God is, right, verse 30, since God mm -hmm. is one, yours says that God is the only God, right, who justifies the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. It is through this faith that God is shown to be one and to be holy, right, that he would upon all people, right, offer the gift of grace, the atoning work of Jesus, that none might boast in themselves because it was by his grace alone without us being able to do anything. Man, I think you're so right. There's so many implications mm -hmm. for the way in which we carry out our lives as mm -hmm. followers of Christ and the way that we're not boasting in any way because supremely we cannot boast in our own salvation. Um, mm -hmm. Man. God is great. Worthy to be praised. Yeah. Amen. I'll just close by saying this. I know we were talking about before. I listened to something from Bob Gladstone. It's one of my favorite teachers the other day. And he was just talking about how in the epistles, when they are addressing specific issues, they would first arrive and reproclaim the gospel to put the issue in its proper context. And I think this idea of where then is boasting is a perfect example of how boasting and human pride and class systems and all these things that can uh, pop up in the body of Christ are actually gospel issues. They're not just moral issues, they're gospel issues. And by putting them in their proper context, reproclaiming the gospel, we see them for what they are. And we come back to that humble place, you know, beneath God. And as Lucas said, we worship him as the one true God. Uh, we honor him, we glorify him. Uh, the beauty of this message, we talk so much about sin. I just feel like I need to say this. This is good news, guys, because yeah. it's the righteousness you could never afford. You could never purchase. You could never buy. No matter how hard you try, you could never yeah. get it has been freely given to you. Let that be the thing you walk away from knowing yeah. today, that that which you yeah. could never earn on your own has been yeah. freely given to you because God loved you so much to send his one and only yeah. son to be the atoning sacrifice so that you could inherit his righteousness 
And if yeah. you're in Christ, you are now the, called the righteousness of God in Christ. That is yeah. a beautiful and precious reality. We could stand, spend many hours uh, and weeks and months and years staring at the fact that we are now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Yeah. It's just absolutely mind-blowing and yeah. uh, worth staring at for sure. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us on this fourth episode here, man. I know that this has been a very uh, exciting thing for me to be able to do with you, bro. Really appreciate you and uh, man, praise the Lord for all that he's done in our lives. Hope you guys find encouragement in this. Yeah, grace and peace.